Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. So glad to have a place to talk politics and culture and important stuff without a bunch of screamers. And we actually don't mind having a little bit of fun along the way. By the way, if you like a show, like the show, tell a friend. Seriously, listeners recommending our program to their friends and family who might like it is actually the number one way word gets out about what we're doing here. I am your host, Jessica Stone. Glad to have an opportunity to talk both politics and religion with my fearlessly creative and compassionate co-host, Corey Nathan. Corey, how are things? Uh, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. We lost our family pup, our family dog of 14 years. Uh, but we just got, um, a, a, our friends made this beautiful illustration, such a detailed, beautiful illustration, and it brought me to tears this morning. So uh, bittersweet, bittersweet. All right. Well, let me get to our guests because I know we're both really thrilled to have them here today. Our next guests are James Patton. He is the president and CEO of ICRD, the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy. James has uniquely blended religious and political know-how, in particular, his understanding of political transformation throughout his career, spanning over two decades in more than a dozen countries, from Bolivia to Cambodia, Sudan to South Sudan. He is joined today by Lujane Kiki, who works on countering violent extremism in North Africa and also in Yemen specifically. But I want to begin today with you, Lujane. Uh, you came here from Syria, and I just want to know from your vantage point, you're watching these scenes like so many of our listeners and viewers happening in Afghanistan. What's this like for you? It's actually heartbreaking. It took us all by surprise, the, the chaos. And, and I can't imagine what people in Afghanistan, actually, I can't imagine a bit, uh, the chaos, the fear, the, the panicking, uh, the uncertainty from the future. And especially in, well, and especially after the explosion that happened yesterday, this being hurtful uh, uh, for me and I imagine to, to everybody and I, I recall this, this video when, when the Afghan man tried to ha hand his daughter over to the American soldier for her to get a better future. And, and I do think this is what we all care about. Uh, I do have a nine years old uh, kid who I, I really want her to have better future, to get better opportunities. And um, she's, she's, she's very proud of her Syrian identity, but at the same time, she's never visited Syria. So this is so touching. And we, we need all to collaborate to, to help each other to, to solve this, this issue. And we'll be giving people, folks, uh, a way to do that later on in the program. We'll look to you for that information. But Lujane, you lived in Syria, you also lived in Saudi Arabia, and you now live in the United States, where we're talking to you now. Can you talk about the diversity of thought and belief within the Muslim world, and how do you use your religious knowledge and the ability to sort of 
to calibrate between these different readings of Quran uh, and understanding in that context? Thank you so much for this question, because many people who, who didn't encounter Muslims maybe in their life, they think that every country in the Muslim world is uh, similar. They think they have the same culture. They think that they practice Islam similarly, which is not the case. I lived in Syria and Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned, and they are totally different countries. I do hold very uh, amazing memories from people in both countries. Of course, my, my home country, Syria. But uh, in Syria, for example, Syria is a very diverse country. It has a very diverse community. Um, it has different uh, cultures, different ethnicities, and different religions at the same time. So we, we grew up with, with everybody, like a bit similar to the United States, where you don't know, where you didn't say this one is Christian or this one is Muslim. I don't know if this Muslim is Shia or this Muslim is Alawi. So uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia, it is a bit different. Uh, uh, the, you can say that total population is Muslim between sects, Shia and Muslim, but there are also foreign workers who are part Muslim and part non-Muslim from different uh, uh, religions. So moving around and living in Syria has made me, let's say, more to tolerant, mm. more able to uh, accept other views and to deal with people with normality, not thinking that I am the right one during a conversation. Like I would listen and, and just accept this person the way he is. And I only play, blame, let's say, politics or the way that politics has, in Syria talking, uh, of course, here has, has used religion to uh, create conflict between uh, the people. So it, it it was surprising when, when one day people used to get coexist together and the second day people started hating each other and, and killing each other. So this is really um, astonishing. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the radical voices in Islam, which is for some Americans, their only concept of a Muslim person or Islamic belief is their exposure to people like Al-Qaeda or the narratives around the Taliban, which we're of course revisiting right now. Um, how often do you find that radical voices in Islam cannot be convinced to be more moderate? I would say that this question a bit, uh, an extension to the previous one. When, when in, in some cases, people do not interact with, with other people from different cultures, from different religions, whether Muslims or non-Muslims, when, when you, when you, when you live in this shell away from everybody else, away from you don't do, have interactions with other cultures and with other religions and people from different opinions, you will live with the mentality that you are the, the one who's right, your, your, your point of view is correct, and you cannot accept others. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say that we shouldn't um, surrender to this idea we need to, to, to know that in some cases, even a word that you speak to somebody will stay within him and will might in some cases affect him to change later in the future. So I hope this answered your question. There's a real big kernel of hope there that I think people need to hear um, because we're 
often made to feel like we can't be different and still get along um, in many cultures. And I think what you're saying there, if I'm hearing you properly, is that we can still express our differences, but do so with openness and understanding. Exactly, exactly. And this, this also uh, relates to a, a, a very critical issue that I've been thinking about lately is, is the identity which relates to the situation of Afghan Syrians and refugees. The identity of these people in the host communities and how they are being accepted and how are them being integrated in these communities in a way that they maintain their own identity, maintain, they know that, for example, they can practice their religion freely and at the same time be actual American. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this probably brings up actually a lot for you, Corey, because you've gone through a religious conversion, but still keeping a lot of the trappings and traditions of your ethnic and religious upbringing. Yeah, I, and I admit that earlier on in my own formation, I, uh, James and Lujana, I grew up as an, uh, going to an Orthodox synagogue in an observant Jewish family. And about 20 something years ago, I became a, a Christian. Uh, we went to an evangelical uh, Southern Baptist church for, for about 10 years. Uh, so a lot of my conversations earlier on were of the more explicitly evangelical flavor. Um, and I went about the, these conversations almost as a contest. Uh, I, I hate to look back on some of the emails that I traded with my dad uh, in those days, but I, over time, I, I came to be more drawn to dialogue as opposed to the assumption that every point of view that I had um, was the beginning and the end of the truth. And my job was to get those around me, friends, family, um, uh, others that I encountered to agree, uh, you know, to the extent they agreed with me 100%, they were right too. Um, but but uh, listen, we're humans, um, uh, we're all uh, flawed. And um, I, I think that we uplift each other and learn from each other and can't assume it, even even if we agree on the scriptures or, or you know or or even certain virtues our interpretation of those virtues or how to you know live out those virtues may be different and and that's that's where the beauty is so i, I i'm really encouraged uh, by a lot of what you're saying lujane and and i'm also obviously this is a lot of your organization's work uh it's the heartbeat of a lot of your organization's work so i'm i'm really encouraged and inspired just to be here with you thank you so unlike um, Corey's appearance, we can't naturally tell from Corey or even from James or from myself, maybe what religion we practice. But in your case, Lujane, for the people who can't see you right now, you are a Muslim woman who has chosen to cover. And I'm curious, especially with an eye towards the influx of refugees that also may be making that decision, how do you want our audience to know what it's like to be you, a, a, a woman who is covering, what is it like? How have you been received? And what should we know about how to receive those who make that decision? Um, I, feel, I feel actually visible. I feel under the microscope. So being a person uh, with, with hijab in the streets and with different, like, different appearance, different clothes. So I try to blend in, but it uh, never works. <laughs> 
but seriously, I, I haven't faced anything that is negative until now. I was welcomed nicely by every single person that I met until now, alhamdulillah, <laughs> not to jinx it. Are you saying now you've recently had an experience that was less than welcoming? No, no. Uh, okay. Until now, and hopefully this continues into the future. Uh, for me, my family, and every person, whoever he is, and and whatever uh, religion he holds or whatever beliefs he holds in in his heart. So, if you have a question, I would say not you. For example, people in the street or people who are interested to know more about the religion, if they have a question, please ask. But at the same time. Do not expect me to answer something that pleases you or that goes well with, with your beliefs. And at the same time, I might uh, not answer. I might choose not to answer this question. So it, as long as I'm respecting the rules in this country, as long as I am treating you and to, uh, in a respectful way, as long I am not hurting anybody, so... I deserve to be respected and I deserve to uh, to get the same chances as everybody in this country. What's your advice to the communities that are going to be receiving and already are receiving the refugees right now? Honestly, I've seen an amazing work from my colleagues and the community that I am uh, that I live in, but at the same time I want to spot the light on something that's really important is that we need to focus also on the hosting communities, not to neglect the hosting communities while welcoming the newcomers. And because this will create resentment and this will create a problem in these people that might evolve in the future. And this brings to my mind what happened or what's happening to the Syrian refugee. Remember when the Syrian refugees started or the as called Syrian refugees crisis in Europe between 2015, 16, 17, when Syrians were met with roses. And what's happening now is in some European countries, governments are preparing to send people back to Syria when the situation is far from safe. And, uh, uh, and after they have created lives, after they uh, learned languages, after they got jobs, after they, I would say, integrated into the community, now they need to prep themselves to go back and get reintegrated with their homeland again in a situation or live in a situation that is harmful to them and to their families. I actually have my mother still in, in, in Damascus. There's lack of water, no electricity, no fuel during winter, and People are stressful. So it is welcoming refugees in the community should be really studied. Sorry. I don't want to interrupt, uh, you know, Jane sharing from her own experience. And as you can tell, these are, you know, these aren't theoretical or, or strategic or methodological things, although all of that is really important. This is about our fellow human beings, right? And people are, are really going through incredible experiences right now of disruption, of loss, 
of fear. Uh, we have people that we are uh, as individuals, but also as an organization trying to help um, leave Afghanistan right now. And, and Jessica, I know you were talking about a close friend of yours who needs to, to escape because the, there's no certainty that staying you'll be safe and there's no certainty that trying to leave you'll be safe. I mean, the, the people who are stuck at the airport in Kabul, for example, you know, talk about being caught between the proverbial rock and hard place. You know, some of them, if they stay, they'll be tracked down and, and probably interrogated, maybe tortured and even killed. And yet they're stuck <laughs> waiting to get into a place that might give them an exit and they're vulnerable to attack there. Uh, so I think what, you know, what I hear in Lou Jane's appeal, and I would wholeheartedly encourage people um, to, to do a lot of spiritual discernment on is this is not about policies and politics. It's not about practicalities. It's about humanity. And it's about our, the, the sacred, you know, just the manifestation of what we Quakers would call the light of the divine in the other. Uh, you know, the, the, everyone around the world is part and parcel of the human community. They belong to us. We belong to them. Um, you know, the, the great Vietnamese Buddhist peacemaker Thich Nhat Hanh talks about interbeing and how, you know, once we recognize that we are part of, not just related to, but integral to a system in which we are all affecting one another by our choices and actions, uh, then we will start to heal and take care of one another as a community. And this is so critically important. Now, in terms of the practical stuff, there's that as well, right? We have to think through how do we do that? How do we do care? How do we mobilize resources? What kind of resources should we mobilize? How do we influence those around us who are skeptical, who are afraid, who have kind of political aversion to some of these things. I mean, one of the things I think I would say, particularly when it comes to receiving those who, uh, who are different than we are, is to remember we talk a lot in the United States about, you know, I hear this all the time, quote unquote, our way of life. But nobody ever talks about what they think that means, right? I'm convinced that fundamentally what was different about the American experiment was that its institutions its communities, the government structures, the processes were all about not advancing a single idea of who we are. That wasn't what, what, it, what it was constructed for. Fundamentally, the, the experiment here was how do we best live as people who are different and, and enshrine and embrace the value of difference and diversity and build some institutions and processes that allow us to meet in that diversity, debate, haggle, argue, and then come up with a solution that best meets the interest of the collective. And oh, by the way, if it's not working, we get to change it and shift it and move it. And so when I hear our way of life, what I hear is the value of and, and the protection of difference and allowing that difference to come into contact in a way that brings out the best of who we are collectively so that we learn from each other that we benefit from engagement with one another and i think one of the the real failings um, that i'm seeing now in in our contemporary experience is that we're all isolating from one another right and so you 
most people I know who have deep prejudices don't really know the people that they're talking about. You know, uh, there isn't a lot of contact because once you connect with somebody and you humanize them and you start to see maybe there's something about them that resonates with me as well, it's really hard then to dismiss hate and other them, particularly to the point of radicalization to violence, because you, you see them as a fellow human being. And there's a very funny story that I heard a pastor tell about a, a Muslim friend of his who was at a, a football game. I think it was in, in uh, it was the Eagles. And so he was watching the football game and prayer time came. And so he went down, you know how stadiums are, they have these big cement walkways, right? Mm -hmm. So he went and found a place to hide and put his prayer mat out, aimed at Mecca and was praying and he felt a presence behind him. And so he finished praying and he turned around and got up and started rolling up his mat. And there's an American guy, right? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you know, a, a Super Bowl Sunday guy, you know, six foot wide and six foot tall and big beard. And he's got his, his Philadelphia Eagles jersey on. And he looks down at this guy and he goes, you a Muslim? <laughs> and the guy said, uh, yeah. <laughs> well <laughs> yes i am <clears throat> and he says to him straight up he says you know i don't like muslims from everything i've heard about them and he started to get a little uncomfortable and the guy looks at him and he goes but you're an eagles fan you can't be all that bad right and then <laughs> and he walks off and it just points i you know it's a great anecdote it's funny but at the same time it really points at this thing i don't know if you're familiar with uh, the author amartya sen he wrote a book um, called Identity and Conflict. Uh, and in, in that book, he makes an argument that I have long held to be true, which is if you reduce your identity down to a single thing, then you break uh, all of these myriad ways in which you can connect to fellow humans, right? We are not singular in our identity. Lujain is not just Muslim. She's not just Syrian. She's not just an ICRD employee. She's not just a mom. You start packing all those things together. All of a sudden, your connections to other people just expand exponentially, right? We have to revive that sense of the multiplicity of who we are as a people here and how valuable that is. Radicalization is... is universally tied to the reduction of identity, right? As people get singular in their viewpoint, they lose their ability to be unsure. They lose their ability to want to learn, to be humble in the face of new things. They know the capital T truth. Corey, you brought this up, right? And that is the only thing. It's very easy to radicalize from that perspective, right? It's very easy. And honestly, you know, when it comes to, and we, I'd love to have this conversation with you, Corey, because this has come up with me working with Christians around the world and in other places. And we've worked with every faith tradition across the board. It's not just true, true of Christians, but I came from a Roman Catholic background. So I kind of speak Catholic or Christian still uh, from, my, <laughs> from my formation. But I talk to a lot of these very, very secure in truth Christians and I asked them I said well where's the room for the divine right I mean isn't the isn't isn't the paradox of faith the word itself means two things right it means to believe in a thing but it also means to not know 
right? You put your you put your life or your decisions or the truth or whatever it is in the hands of something greater than you are. That is core to faith. You know, the humility, the 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 unknowing, the cloud of unknowing, as as you know, the great the great mystical Catholic text calls it. Um, and so when people stop being uncertain in the face of their own spiritual growth, then they they restrict the what we what the Jesuits would call the eruption of the divine into history, right? There's no room for the divine. And so where is that relationship with God if they're if they're talking about being so God? And you know, I've challenged people on this in the field, and, and half of them get up and leave the room and never come back. <laughs> it's okay, I understand that. And then the other half that stay are actually people who you can start to work with on, oh, by the way, maybe your God is active in this other person who looks different than you do, speaks different than you do, carries a different book than you do, but is equally committed to peace. And if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, if we want to lean back on Christian texts, you know, peace, mercy, justice, even humility from Micah, right? This is all woven into the doctrine. And so once you find folks who are able to lean into that as part of their faith, this is not about homogenizing religious traditions, right? It is your relationship with divinity that calls you to see, again, the, the Quaker phrase, light of the divine in the other. Sounds like Lojane was uh, someone that stayed. You, you said earlier that um, a lot of people leave when you give them that alternative. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like Lujane is someone who stayed. Well, Lujane, I would, I would take absolutely zero credit for ever influencing Lujane's worldview. Lujane came to us uh, with already a committed desire to, to, to do good things in the world through her faith. If I can, if I can, put that on you, Lujan, and correct me if you would articulate it differently, but Lujan is a rock star and has been just an, a blessing for ICRB to have here and, and has given us all great, a great deal of, of help and guidance on so many things. So yes, I, you know, one of the great things about the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy is we, we seem to be a magnet for people like that. Everyone on our staff could be doing other things elsewhere. And frankly, and Lujane will probably not at this, probably getting better paid, you know, <laughs> certainly maybe get dental. Um, <laughs> but so, so we have a staff that is so powerfully spiritually and personally committed to transforming the challenges that are causing harm in the world that it is just, I mean, it's the, it's the greatest blessing of my life to be, to count them as colleagues and, and to count them as, as my, uh, you know, the people I get to spend my days with. I'm not saying I don't get tired at work. I'm not saying there aren't days I'd rather just, you know, stay married to the pillow. But I am never disappointed to be in, in concert with this group to try to do the things that we're trying to do. Lujane, I do want to ask you about your work in Yemen. This is a good illustration of exactly what we're talking about right now. Uh, so you work with populations in Yemen who are faced with these insane choices that the Taliban, or, or for that matter, ISIS gives people under its control, fight and feed your family or starve and die. Uh, can you talk about your work and what kind of results you're seeing? 
Sure, of course. Uh, yes, as you mentioned, our work in Yemen is focused on countering violent extremism, though violent groups in Yemen are not restricted to religious extremism. You have also extremism that are related to the parties who are fighting to rule as well. So we, we, when we, We've been working on in Yemen for a long time, and but our recent projects, and, and we've also created an amazing relationships with the people there, relationships that sustains, uh, and they are the actual heroes in, in, in the work that we do, because they know the environment, they study the environment. We don't go there with an agenda, with, with an already like written curriculums and, and, and ideas to just work work this in Yemen and just check the box. No, we, we do count in on our partners in Yemen to tell us what are their needs? What are what is happening there? What are the risks? Why are youth are susceptible to violent extremism? And what we did is we work in several governorates in Yemen. And in each governorate, we don't have the same reason for, for, for joining extremism. We don't have the same reason for joining violent groups. In each governorate, there's a different cause for this. In, a, in, in, in one, there, there is, for example, no employment. In another, there is uh, uh, some kind of, of religious groups. In another, so it's different reason everywhere. So we tailor the projects in each governorate according to work with, uh, to solve the problem that is there. So, I'm going to give you an example, and let's let me go back a little bit. What's happening in Yemen, or let's go to 2016, for example. The reason why Al Qaeda, why Al -Qaeda was able to control some areas in Yemen is uh, uh, the vacuum that was created by the conflict and the absence of government. Al Qaeda was able to provide services. Al Qaeda was able to solve problems that people uh, uh, face. Uh, to give solutions to meet their needs. And it is similar to also what happened in, in northern Syria, where ISIS was able to provide people with courts, with systems, and, and solve their problems. You, you told me, Lujain, once that, um, that actually women in Syria sought out ISIS courts for justice because that was their only alternative. Yes. That, yes. that was very, that, that's very jarring to, to think about. Yes, yes. So what, what happened is we cannot go also to Yemen and say, let's talk about peace building while you, uh, your basic needs are not met. Let's talk about violent extremism while you are starving or, or, uh, or, or lacking basic services in life. This is not fair. So what, what we did is we combined, we have this methodology of combining trainings and community initiatives where we empower communities to make them more resilient to, to extremism, to more, make them more resilient to, to face violent groups. They are now more empowered. They are now familiar or know, aware that they can solve their own problems. They can fix it. They don't need anybody else to do the job for them. And in one of the projects that was done in, in Yemen is a project that helped, uh, they were facing a problem with rain, heavy rains that were causing floods. And these floods were causing destruction to the villages and the houses. And, and the water was not getting to the, the, the agricultural land. So what happened is they, they designed an, an, an irrigation system that 
stopped water after rain from getting into houses and villages and was directed into the agricultural land. And I heard, I heard from actual person who was included in that project that he and his, his colleagues were thinking or considering joining violent, violent groups or armed groups, conflicting parties to get salary at the end of the month. And after this project, this particular person was trained on, trained on project management. So while he was, uh, he, he, he was able to work in the, on this aspect, while other people, uh, other, uh, his friends, for example, started working on, uh, on uh, cultivating their lands. And so I asked him, would the income from cultivating your land match the income that you will get from joining like uh, conflicting groups? He said, no. He said, no, but I, we as Yemeni people are sick of war. Enough is enough. We want to live with our families. We need to, to be able to provide with our families and enjoy our lives with them. We are sick of what is happening. This needs to stop. So then, and we are very proud of our partners in Yemen. Mm -hmm. uh, they are amazing. And we, we, we do want to, to send a message to everybody that do not freeze the funding or the help. Do not stop helping our friends in Yemen. You know, you bring up questions and struggles that seem, we just seem to be in a different chapter of, of similar struggles. They seem to be ongoing. I want to go back, uh, James, I want to go back to your background I noticed that you studied at UConn, uh, initially philosophy and art and then biology. And then a few years later, you went to Harvard Divinity School. Were there certain questions that you were grappling with that you wanted to go back and, and explore with your MDiv? And are some of these questions the very things that are being worked out in very real world ways that you know, Lou Jane is talking about um, life and death issues. Is there a, a direct line there? Or am I, am I imagining two very different worlds? Um, one in the theoretical academic and one in the, in the feeding our children and, and avoiding war and staying a lot like, uh, am, I, am I putting things together that don't really belong together? Or is there some sort of a straight line there? No, I, you know, it's, it's funny that you say this. Let me, I, can I highlight and, and I, I'd love to answer this question, but I want to highlight two things that Jane said that I think are super important. The first being the heroes of this work are the people on the ground. We have so many people we work with who are daily facing potential loss of family members, loss of life, because they believe in peace over conflict. And these people will never have their stories told. They will never sit on a podcast. They'll never have their picture up on a LinkedIn profile. They are the heroes of this work. We do everything we can to find them and elevate uh, them and, and their stories and their capacities. And I think that's really, really important to keep in mind. The other thing that, that is critically important, and you asked an earlier question about radicalization, is that a tiny minority of people are ideologically committed to violence, that they find in their texts or they find in their belief system, whether it's religious or not, the desire to hurt others. The vast majority of people who are involved in violent conflict, whether it's what you would call extremist violence or, or any other kind of violent conflict, are doing that because of other grievances, 
or other needs. Much of it is economic. I saw the exact same drivers towards violence around questions of belonging, exclusion, risk, lack of opportunity in gangs in Latin America that we see uh, with recruitment in, in Yemen uh, by ACAP and ISY. You know, I think it's really telling that, I think it was the Twitter feed of, of uh, IS Yemen that something like 84, 85% of their tweets were about social issues, were about needs, were about infrastructure, were about helping people's families. A tight, like three or 4% were about the things that we focus on, which are the Hadood punishments and, you know, the things that we think, oh, these are radical Muslims are chopping people's hands off. They were actually providing services to people. That's why people embrace them. They do not agree. The vast majority of folks don't agree with the, the ideological radicalization in some of these spaces. And in fact, the more devout people are in terms of their faith, the less likely they are to join these groups because they actually understand within their faith tradition that this is a, this is a contravention of what they're being called to do uh, by God. And so it goes back to your point about, you know, don't paint them all with the same brush, them, whatever them you're talking about, right? Whether it's ethnicity, whether it's faith, whether it's politics, the minute you say them, you're wrong, right? Because there is no them. And if you realize that, then you will identify allies in those spaces who understand that you have shared desires for the benefit of everybody, and they'll be able to influence the people that they can influence that you can't get access to or influence. So anyway, I just, you know, there's really important stuff that LeJane's talking about. Now, when you talk about my background, I like that you found a through line. When I, when I was, I took a motorcycle after undergraduate went across the United States and I was out in California on Route 1. If you've ever been in Route 1 in California, you realize that you can go a mile up the coast, but you put 20 miles on your vehicle, right? Because it <laughs> winds and winds. And I asked a guy at one point, I said, how far is such and such a place? And he said, oh, I don't know, it's about 10 miles. And I said to him, as the crow flies? <laughs> and he looked at me and said, son, out here, even the crows don't fly straight. Right? So <laughs> that, that was always the sense I had of my background, right? We have a saying, the Quakers have a saying, follow the way that opens. And I always felt like spiritually, I kind of followed that guidance, even when I didn't uh, adhere to a, a particular faith tradition, that you leaned on things and what seemed right and what called you and what moved, you moved with it, right? And so, yeah, my background's a little weird. Um, art student, scientist. Uh, then I did the next obvious thing. I became a beekeeper in Paraguay. I have to ask you about that. That was going to be like, uh, I just don't know how that fits in. Has that helped you at all in any of the work that you oh, do absolutely. now? Absolutely. You know something, I'll tell you what. <laughs> you know how after, not to get stung? I don't know. <laughs> well, and when I went down there, I, you know, that's all I knew is run from them. Um, <laughs> but, but I'll tell you what, after, I'll, I'll tell you, quite honestly, there's a couple of responses to that that I think are actually critical. I left undergraduate after doing two degrees. Uh, because I didn't know what to do with myself. And I finally got, you know, my parents told me, you know, leave school. Yeah. <laughs> Any way you're going to leave it, you're going to leave it, right? Um, so I, I looked around, and it was literally, it was like the, the second to last semester, I saw a flyer that said Peace Corps. And I thought, you know, I, I'm interested in justice issues. I'm interested in international affairs. I want to go wander and have adventure. This seems great. And at the same time, you know, I had grown up in a obviously vastly privileged space. 
not only as an American, not only as a white male American, but I grew up in a family, my father was a military officer. And so we had resources as well, right? And I was able to kind of be a goof off in my first couple of years in, in college and not end up out of my butt. And so I thought, here's an opportunity to kind of not only learn, but maybe give something back. And honestly, I got much more out of that experience than I ever, ever gave. And I think that's true of most people. But I was in rural Paraguay, living in a community in a shack with no electricity, with you know termites building nests under my bed. I could either get my bicycle in or I could get in the shack before I shut the door, you know? And um, not only at the end of those two plus years, because I hung out a little longer, did I know more about beekeeping than anything else? Because I was so focused on that. And you can learn so much about the relationships with the natural world. I won't go into that, but it's really, I miss it. It really was not only a meditative practice, but it's just such an incredible thing to be, you, you create a relationship with a colony of animals um, and the people around them that you work with, right? But not only that, but I, I learned more about community in that poor undereducated uh, village of 120 people than I had ever learned in any other space growing up uh, in the United States, right? And I'm not disparaging the United States, I'm just saying the intensity with which most people live in rural communities in this world where they have to depend on one another. You know, you can't pull your, your yucca root out of the ground, you go, cross the street down to somebody else who's closer to the water, softer ground, and they give you some of theirs because they know next time if that gets swamped and, and drowns the plants, they're going to come up and get it from you. There's this integrated survival that informs most people's existence in this world that we've become divorced from, you know? And so you're lucky if you know your neighbors and, and it takes the extra effort to go out and kind of chat with them, you know, and if they make noise, it's annoying, you know, <laughs> but when you live in a place like that, you don't survive without each other. And, and that's really something I think, I, I think is profoundly sad about the, the developed global North and, and the West as we see it is that, those who have resources have forgotten what it means to live in community, largely, you know, and I, again, I don't want to paint with a wide brush, but it's largely true uh, because we don't have to anymore. And so this informs a lot of what we're talking about. We have to constantly renew our sense of community, remind ourselves what it means, get out, go, go help the Afghan refugees. They're sitting up here at, at Northern Virginia Community College. We're going this weekend. Come with us, right? Because then you will remember what it means to be part of a community that's diverse. And that's who we are. So, yes, that was a critically important period for me. It also exposed me to the liberation theologians. And then when I came back at the time as a lapsed Catholic, I like to say I fell in with the wrong crowd. You know, I started <laughs> out with a bunch of Quaker peace builders and a bunch of uh, Jesuit liberation theologians and ended up, you know, really kind of, you talk about radical, I radicalized my sense of social justice at that time in a way that completely formed the direction I went in. And so why did I go to divinity school? I went to divinity school because I looked around and I said, you know, we have these religious doctrines. And on the one hand, people will turn to them to justify hating some other group and find divine justification for that. 
there's a great saying, which is, you know, you've made God in your image when God hates the same people you do, right? But then other people go into these texts and in them, they find the inspiration to overcome their own pain and fear, things that are visceral and natural to lead them to do the most extraordinary things, you know, like forgive one another for things that they've suffered. Like look into the heart of someone who's different than they are and say, we can find common ground, even though it seems like we should hate one another. And people turn to their faith to do that. I'll tell a quick story if I have, if I have your permission. I, I know I can go off on, on tangents, but when we were in Colombia working with women of faith um, to, to work on reconciliation, to reintegrate former combatants into conflict-impacted communities after effectively 100 years of violence in Colombia. Um, we had a group, and, and it still exists, a group called Genpaz, which is a Grupo Ecumenico de Mujeres Constructores de Paz. Wonderful group of women. It was initially formed between Catholic and Protestant women, but had indigenous women now in it, and we were doing a reconciliation process. And I brought in some women from uh, paramilitary groups to talk to them. And, and honestly, you have to be really careful. It doesn't matter that you have 20 years of experience. You have to be very cautious when you do these things to make sure the situation is ripe and people are ready. And to be honest, I, I made a mistake and I brought the groups together too quickly and the, the situation got very tense and they were not ready to hear each other. And so we broke up and I was worried about what was gonna happen. And a group of the Christian women went into the convent where we were staying and came back wrapped in bed sheets and started acting out this pageant in front of everybody spontaneously of the biblical passage of the adulteress who is dragged out, thrown in the sand in front of Jesus. And they say, you know, the, the authorities tell him, you have to command that she is stoned to death. Yeah. That's the law. And he sits and doodles in the, in the, in the dirt with a stick and, and then famously says, let the one amongst you who has not sinned cast the first stone. Again, I'm paraphrasing the sacred text, forgive me. But um, so they actually acted this all out. And then they started a conversation. They said, well, what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to sit where he sits, to have the authorities, which at the time, you know, the, the authorities, the government was very much against the guerrilla group and wanted to just destroy everybody associated with it. They're calling for bloodshed. They're calling for punitive action. And yet Jesus commands effectively forgiveness, pardon. And they talk this through. And then one of the great things that came out of that conversation, they said, well, there's a second passage in there that everybody forgets where he says to her, go and sin no more. Yeah, right. And this, and then we started talking about reconciliation. We said, okay, what is the path towards a reconstructed relationship with the other. Pardon, which is the opening of the way forward, the, the opening of the possibility of change. It's not a moment where you say, oh, I forgive you, forget about it, no big deal, we'll talk later, right? And you shot my brother, and then 10 years later, you shoot my sister, and I don't worry about it because I forgave you the first time. It doesn't work that way. And that's why forgiveness actually, people, it's really a burdened term. But if you look at this as pardon as being I have enough from you to trust you want to change. And I want to change with you. Let's build something new, right? But there's this promise of non-repetition that's written into that. Yeah. Which is you have to show me that you're different. Because I can't just 
you know, move on with you. Sometimes people forgive to get away from a situation, but it's not with the other person. It's not restorative justice, right? If I'm going to move on with you, I have to see that you're committed to transformation as well. That conversation was so powerful and it came directly out of the sacred texts. Otherwise, they would not have been able to get over the fact that here are some paramilitary women associated with groups who slaughtered their friends and family, other female peace builders. They wouldn't have been able to transcend that if they didn't have their texts to go back to and their faith to go back to. And the funny thing was the indigenous women in the group who witnessed and then participated in the conversation connected so powerfully to the values that they were expressing that their relationship as reconcilers together took a huge step forward, even though it wasn't their sacred text. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up some really great points. You're referring to go and sin no more. Um, You're also referring to reconciliation. Um, There's a, a part in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 18, where there's a process by which uh, folks have used a piece of it uh, basically to extract certain church members. You know, if, you're, if your uh, brother sins, go and approach him and confront him with his sin. If he doesn't respond well, take another person from the church and confront him. And if that doesn't go well, bring him before the church. And if that doesn't go well, you know, basically you're out, you're out of the club. But, you know, that, that the rest of the chapter, if we keep reading, is really about forgiveness, you know, the parable at the end is about the unmerciful servant, you know, so it really is about forgiveness. It's about reconciliation. But I wanted to bring it back to something that you talked about in one of your talks uh, in 2014. Uh, you gave a talk at Wheatley Institution at BYU, the role of religion in conflict dynamics. But in that talk, you shared some inspiring ins- illustrations from around the world. Um, about, again, the role of religion in conflict dynamics. And this is a question for both of you. Over the subsequent years, has your faith in religion's ability to have an ameliorating effect in, in major conflicts, has it been challenged or affirmed or, or maybe a little bit of both? Well, you know, the, may, maybe this is the, my, my way of getting out of difficult questions, but um, <laughs> I, I am, in the end, I'm about impact. That's it. You know, for me, it's about how do we make change? How do I stop people from killing each other, right? And, you know, not to say I'm the agent of that change, but how do, how do we participate in a process that makes a broken relationship less broken? or a dangerous, violent, dehumanizing one, less so. Now, this is, this is difficult work that will never go away. You know, when people come into this work and ask about it, I always say, don't think it's a point A to point B transition. You're not going from a busted world to a fixed world. You're in a cycle. And a place that has experienced this may experience it again. A generation that experiences this may be followed by another generation that experiences it again. We are, you know, we constantly revisit our histories. If you don't understand that that's the nature of what you're struggling against, it's part of the dynamic of the human condition, the, the possibilities on both sides, you know, that, that you are actually just kind of leaning on the scales and trying to tip them and they will keep swinging back and forth. If you don't understand that, then it's going to be very disappointing work and disheartening work in the end, right? So 
I come back to the question of what can we do with what we have where we are now, right? It's not a matter of whether or not religion does incline people to violence or might incline them towards peace building. It's 84% of the global population as of what, 2014 in the Pew report that we always quote, Lou Jane, you know, self-describe as religious. It's there, it's in the room. You can either deal with it or not deal with it. You can, and I have lots, I came out of a, you know, when I left the Catholic church, I went way into the progressive uh, social activist side. And a lot of my former colleagues and friends are pathologically allergic to religion, right? And believe <laughs> that it is the cause yeah. of all evil, right? Religion's value neutral. It really is. I mean, it's a matter of how we live it out in relationship. It has the potential for the divine within it, right? You know, I, I don't mean to offend anyone, but for me as a Quaker, this this is a text with lots of stuff in it that may or may not, depending on how I encounter it and manifest it into the world, reflect divine principles of care over harm, of, of empathy over hatred. That, that's up to me. That manifests in relationship. That is spirit. The spirit is what exists between us and other things as we move through the world. Are we, as the Jesuits, some of the Jesuit liberationists would say, manifesting the kingdom as we do that or not, right? So the question of whether I'm disappointed ultimately in my aspirations for what religion can and should be, you know, I'm, I'm not any more disappointed than I was at the beginning, and I'm not any more disappointed than I will be at the end. You know, what I'm, what I'm, what both disappoints me and is my greatest source of restoration personally spiritually is that it's there it is there if we avail ourselves of it this is what i personally believe about the divine you know i grew up hearing as a catholic that you know god was omnipotent and i took that to mean all powerful omnipotent right can do anything and then we have the problem of evil and we have all of these things why do good things happen to bad people and bad things and good Right. And I got all tangled up in that theologically. But when I revisited that many years later and I thought about that term, I thought, what if potent instead of power is possibility? The divine is always possible, which is to say the fundamental characteristic of divine compassion and care and love, which is, again, going back to my Catholic roots, I can't get away from it. The fundamental characteristic is its availability. Right. The Sufi po poet Rumi talks about the, the spirit and the divine as the water in which the fish swims. So we as fish are always looking around going, where's the divine, right? <laughs> it's in us, we're in it. The question is whether or not we reach into it and, and manifest it or choose not to. And there's the free will question, right? So is it disappointing? Always. Is it hopeful? Always. And that's the whole point, is that the hope never goes away. The availability, the omnipotentiality of the divine eruption into humanity and human history in terms of love, compassion, and care will never go away. Yeah. Are we doing it or not as agents is the big question. I wanted to get 
you know, I pick up on that theme of fish. One of the things that's really fascinating to me about the work of the uh, International Center for Religion and Diplomacy is that I came to understand you more in the context of the kind of the, of work that Lou Jane is doing, madrasa reform, things that were happening overseas. Um, but after January 6th, I picked up the phone and I called your uh, founder emeritus, Doug Johnston, and I realized in the course of even my own evolution that all of the tools that Lou Jane is bringing to bear in Yemen and in North Africa are so needed in our own country. And we saw that obviously in stark display on January 6th. So uh, talk to us now uh, about how the work that ICRD is doing in the United States. Um, you're, you've started this program called Engaging Conservative Actors and Preventing Violent Extremism. Uh, and this is to do domestic work on countering violent extremism. Yeah, well, it's um, that that program, which is foundation funded is actually in its sixth year. And the first five years we did do it abroad. And we, we look particularly, we have some reports on our website from Yemen, from Tunisia, Morocco, looking at Salafi communities. It goes back to the things that we were talking about before about radicalization and identity. You know, we saw that if you're going to affect change in a certain group, you need people who can influence that group, right? Now, a, a Boston Irish ex-Catholic Quaker it ain't going to go marching into a Salafi community in the, the peripheral marginalized areas of Tunis and say, hey, kids, listen, don't join an extremist organization, right? Who's going to be able to do that? The imam. But what if that imam is a Salafi, which is to say a fundamentalist Sunni, but one who does not embrace violence as a manifestation of that faith tradition? Well, sure, we have a lot of things that we don't have in common. We have a lot of issues on, on civil rights, on, on women's rights, on particip participatory governance that we maybe don't agree on. But what we do agree on is the kids around him are being asked to commit violence and we think we can convince them otherwise we can meet at that point and become allies on that then you you're able to change people's behaviors uh, with respect to immediate acts of violence now that's the fundamental framework and we turn around at one point and we see huge spikes here in identity conflict religious identity conflict uh, hate crimes um, you know, white supremacy, religious nationalism, et cetera, et cetera. And we think, my gosh, not only is this so needed in the United States, but how can we have any kind of authority and, and legitimacy if we're out talking Sunni Shia stuff in Pakistan, when people can say, well, what, what about back in, you know, on the hill in Washington, what's going on there, you know? <laughs> so, so for both practical reasons, and of course, you know, our families are here. This is important. This is about the future of who we are as a people. Um, the, you know, we've got to contribute and do what we can to help try to transform this space. And so the, the basic idea of this program is how do we find voices who are spiritually the same as their communities, but those are communities at risk of radicalization of violence here in the United States. And the religious voices in those communities are saying, wait a minute, no, no, no. Not challenging you politically, not challenging you socially. But look at our scripture. It says love. It says care. 
It says understand. It says the divine is everywhere. We need to use that as our launching point to rehumanize and engage in dialogue and try to understand the other rather than going out in the streets and punching each other in the head, right? So that's effectively what we're trying to do right now with this pilot and then looking for bigger funding is to go into communities at risk of radicalization of violence. And I'm sorry, but here it is not the fundamentalist Muslim. Here it's the fundamentalist Christian that is demonstrating a higher likelihood of radicalizing to violence. And so we are taking what we've learned, engaging other faith communities, and starting in that space. It doesn't mean that there isn't radicalization on the, the left politically. It doesn't mean that there aren't radicals in every corner, but the, the narrative that has been in ascendancy right now is around a white supremacy tied to a Christian identity and a Christian nationalism. So that's where our, our primary focus is gonna be. And we're looking for pastors. And frankly, we found a lot of them. And we found a lot of them who are very nervous to talk out because they, they, they lose their jobs if they challenge the, the, their communities on this. So that's the basic idea right now. But yeah, it's um, how do we elevate the best of faith, even fundamentalist faith that, that inspires people towards community care and understanding. That's there and we wanna, we wanna uphold it. Honestly, it's really trying to, to embrace this idea of religious freedom being a positive part of who we are as a culture. You know, And, and if you're devout, and you really follow your scripture, whichever scripture it is, uh, almost all faith traditions call us to be careful of one another. Well, Jane, uh, I've obviously had a little bit of conversation with both of you and James uh, prior to our podcast taping today. And one of the things that, that is striking me is that James has shared the cities that he's piloting this program in. And some of those same cities have had issues with radicalization in other faiths. And I'm just wondering if you have a sense, since you've been doing this work longer overseas, uh, not than James perhaps, but just um, having personal uh, experience in Yemen, what do we need to look for? And how can those of us not directly involved in your work be supportive and create an environment where, um, where this type of work can be successful? You're talking about uh, radicalization of Muslim radicalism? religious populations. Yeah. I mean, I think whether it's a Muslim population or a Hindu population or a Christian population, as you've said, the reasons people get radicalized are largely along the same lines. Just making sure that everybody is included. Just make sure that everybody's needs are met, especially youth. I, I won't say we need to monitor every worship place. I won't say be suspicious of your neighbor or whoever living next door to you. I would just say give equal opportunities to all. James, do you want to talk a little bit about how you chose this, the eight cities that you're going to be piloting with this project? Sure. You know, part of it is is exploratory because it is a it's in a pilot phase right now. So we were looking at not only you know we had a couple of lenses, some practical and some about relationships that we already had where we could get in quickly and start to communicate quickly. But can I share the cities with our listeners? Well, they're in flux a little bit, okay. but, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the one where we are now is we're dropping, we're, we're moving away from a couple. So let me uh, okay. just update you on where we're at. So Portland, Oregon, um, Baltimore, Washington, DC, 
Atlanta, Georgia, Minneapolis, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, although we're a little outside of St. Louis, we found somebody who, who's really, uh, we're, we're really happy to be working with. And we're looking now at uh, Florida for a couple of reasons, but I, I think because, you know, a lot of what's in the news right now about, you know, conflict on political identity lines is really important. And this COVID question is really important. And then we have the final city now, we'll probably do something either in Texas or Arizona. We have, we can get Texas going very quickly. We have a lot of good connections um, in Dallas in particular, but really the idea is, you know, the, these are cities that some have experienced pretty high profile conflict over the last uh, two years, right? People in the streets. And really what, what we're looking at is where are there tensions and, and fault lines along really significant social issues that have us totally divided as a society, which is to say the, the severity and importance and even legitimacy of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, and where do individual rights versus the common good manifest in, in the way people are expressing their, their belief about this and their behaviors around this, right? That's one. The other is, uh, and it was particularly, uh, obviously, very, very important over, you know, maybe a year or two years ago, is um, race, history around race, mm -hmm. how, that, how that then points to things that we can and should do about our social structures, uh, including policing. Um, and then I would say, you know, the, <laughs> just there's this underlying current of, and you brought it up before, you know, ha hatred that's being pushed by, or I guess it was, I was listening to your podcast with, um, with Newman, uh, the, the former Elizabeth Newman. Elizabeth yeah. Newman. Yeah. yeah. And she was talking about, you know, the, the kind of promotion of identity divisions that's been going on, you know, and, and where that's kind of erupting in, in a real sense of the other as dangerous as existentially mm -hmm. dangerous and, and how that might lead to uh, people being combative or even violent. And we've seen people out in the streets waving guns at each other and, and things like that. Obviously, you know, we've had the some mass shooting events that we have to be concerned about, but even just people coming out of their homes to threaten one another with weapons because they're clearly very scared about the implication of this other group. And that's, and so we want to get in and see if we can massage those spaces a little bit to get to dialogue over dehumanization, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of what's happening in the media and maybe even in politics is we're, we're getting pushed farther and farther apart and it's being oversimplified who the, they are and yeah. what they represent for us, you know? Yeah. It's a really good point. I, I, I really do. I've thought a lot about this, that there is this widespread prejudice that's rampant here in the States, but it's a political prejudice. Uh, you know, we've been trained since the late 80s, early 90s to listen to folks uh, on the radio or on TV that tell us all about them and what they want to do and what they're trying to do and that what they want you to think. And they, you know, it's all about, and who's this they, you know, so this paradigm of this brewing cold civil war, now that we're here and this war only seems to get hotter and hotter, is there any turning back from all this? And if so, how? I don't want to be either naive or, or pessimistic. Um, honestly, 
there's a lot of language that's being used right now uh, that is the same language we see in pre-genocidal historical contexts, uh, pre-civil violence contexts, the way the media speaks, the way the politicians speak, and the way community leaders are speaking makes me very, very nervous. There, there are patterns of language that we're starting to see replicate in the United States that have led to significant civil violence in other places or have predated it. So yes, I'm concerned, uh, very concerned. Is it, is it something that, that can't be changed? I, I hope not, because I'd be in the wrong business otherwise, right? I mean, if I can't, if I can't believe that we can transform uh, the drivers of violence before they lead to violence, then I need to change my job. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to go out there and we're trying to say, let's reconnect as humans uh, and, and use the sacred to inspire us to do that. Mm. It's funny because last night I had a whole debate with uh, a Latina immigrant about race and about who should have preference, preferential option, if I can lean on Gutierrez and, and the liberationists, uh, in terms of being taken care of by policies. And the funny thing about that is she was arguing vociferously for taking care of poor white Americans first, because then they feel healed. They may be more receptive to immigration and immigrants. And I was wow. blown away. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. You're arguing that we that the them, the, po the people who are actually manifesting the most prejudice towards your group are the folks you would heal first. So it's, it's possible. It's in our human spirit. To, to think that way. We just yeah. have to find it and elevate it and push back against the folks who would, and honestly, you know, what kills me is there's, we, we talk about the mobilizers and the mobilized. Most people who are mobilized to hatred and violence, they don't, you know, they're, they're scared. They don't, they have unfulfilled needs, but then you got the folks at the top who are doing this for their own power and gain. Yeah. And that, that breaks my heart yeah. because there are, bad folks getting good people to do bad things, you know? So if we can start to strategize, how do we change that narrative to get good people to do good things and isolate those other folks so they don't have any influence, Yeah. then we're going in the right direction. Well, one of the ways that you have of highlighting and celebrating some of the heroes of, of this very, uh, these, these conflicts uh, is the, Faith and Action Award Dinner, uh, which I think, uh, do I remember correctly, is September 23rd? That's correct. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the, what, we, what we lovingly call the FIA dinner, because that saves us some time, um, is, is a history, I mean, is a tradition at, at ICRD of elevating the work of someone who has committed to using their faith to heal social divides. Um, you know, to look for solutions to social problems. And this year we're gonna be um, honoring Krista Tippett, who um, founded and, and ran the On Being Project, which was a, a radio program as well as a podcast, looking at the manifestation of belief and being and, and you know, sort of the spiritual elements uh, in the way that we live in society. And we'll then also have a bunch of other voices there, people from different identity groups talking about this domestic issue and how the pivot from international to domestic is so important right now. But it should be a really nice night. It'll be at the Army-Navy Country Club in Ooh. person in Arlington, Virginia, six o'clock that night. Uh, the 23rd is a Thursday, but also 
on Zoom, because as we know, with the rise of the Delta variant and things like that, we're not quite sure that we all want to be clustered together quite yet, even if we <laughs> do want to be. Um, so, so please feel free to, to uh, direct folks if they'd like to visit the website. They can get some more information at icrd.org. Um, and, and there are tickets for sale and things like that. And we, we just love to have people come and be a part of it. Can we also ask you both to weigh in on what organizations people can be supporting to help the refugees? You mentioned that uh, you're going to be volunteering this weekend. Um, I think we can probably put a list up uh, for folks, but can you mention some of the organizations that you would consider supporting yourself if you were able to make a recommendation? And either of you can take that question. Uh, well, I, I'm thinking of one. Uh, it's just a personal connection to this organization. It's called Mosaic, and it is initiated by a Syrian woman. She started this nonprofit organization when uh, uh, during the, the refugee crisis in 2016, and it, it provides uh, uh, resettlement, it provides hot meals, and now they are asking for donations, like material donations and, and also donations, actual donations, and to, to support the Afghan refugees um, and buying stuff and also uh, hot halal meals as well. Okay. That's great. And, and I would just add, you know, it sort of depends. We're, we're trying to help. We have a back channel network going. A lot of our friends and even colleagues have worked in Afghanistan, have people that they care about there. So there's kind of a back channel effort to help people get out if they, if they want to leave, which is a big challenge right now. Um, International Rescue Committee is a good group in terms of helping people in need when they're moving around, right? Um, there are other refugee groups that do that as well. But here in the States, I've been in contact with um, Islamic Relief USA. I know that they're very tied in uh, and, and helping. I know that the Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Relief Agencies are very tied in as well, which is great to see uh, people working, you know, across their faith traditions to help one another. Um, and then there are lots of other local groups, you know, uh, ah, there's one other that, that's on my mind, but I, I, I will do some more research on this as well. And I'm asking around already, and then maybe can send you my email a, a list that you could post or something. Yeah, we'll get some in, in the show notes and uh, certainly across our social platforms. We do like to give you the opportunity, if, if you want, we, we won't force you, but do, if you, it, do you have any questions for us? Well, I would just say we're probably gonna um, overload you with uh, suggested names for people to come and, and talk about what they're trying to do. There's so many people who are doing good things in this space, and, and I think you all would really like to, and the, and the listenership would benefit from hearing what they're up to. There is hope out there and we should we should bring those voices to the fore. You know, something that you were saying earlier on that there are a lot of these heroes that are on the ground whose stories won't be told. And it remind I've shared this story before um, on on in other conversations we've had here. On March 3rd, it was the 100 year anniversary, the centennial of when my family uh, landed on Ellis Island. Um, so that weekend, uh, we got together for people from all over the country and all over the world. I have some cousins in Israel and told the stories collectively. We knew quite a bit of those stories of what our family was going through in, uh, Russia and Eastern Europe. And it reminds me of some of 
what people are going through today. It was um, heartwarming to be able to tell those stories of, of the folks, you know, that my, my own grandparents and great grandparents uh, whose stories weren't being told in the New York Times at that time. <laughs> That's right. And I'm Irish Italian. So, you know, the history is there. The yeah. century, we fled and there were signs in the windows, no dogs or Irishmen allowed, you know, I mean, there are cycles of this and, and, in, in a way, that's one of the great things about the country is m most of us share that heritage. Yeah. With the exception of the first peoples who had to receive us. And, and yeah. you know, we're working through that still. But. Yeah. So we'd, we'd embrace telling some of those stories and, and lifting up some of those names uh, along with you in collaboration with you. So very importantly, uh, you've, you've mentioned it already, but I, I just want to make sure that we really highlight this. How can folks find more information about you, about ICRD, uh, and any other uh, pertinent information? Well, about ICRD, the, the website, or give us a call. You know, I'm always willing to take a phone call um, but the, or take an email. Uh, but the website, again, is icrd.org. And now Lou Jane might be too humble uh, to talk about it, but Lou Jane is also a fellow now at the Center for Women, Faith, and Leadership, which is a, a fellowship program run by the um, Institute for Global Engagement, IGE. And I'm sure there's lots of great information on what Lujane is doing with them through IGE's uh, website and CWFL. So, uh, you know, Lujane is going to be um, helping us all do a lot of great work. So keep your eye on, on her as a rising star, please. Hopefully. Thank you. And, and also a reminder of our also uh, social media uh, platforms, ICRD underscore NGO as well. And we have also a Facebook play, uh, page. So please, uh, Twitter account, follow as well. Yeah, the Twitter is at ICRD underscore NGO, right? Um, yes. They are the, all the same, I think. Yeah, and the week that we publish uh, after Labor Day, there'll be links uh, in, in all of our posts to your uh, social presence. So that's all, that's all good. Well, it's been a real blessing. Thank you both for reaching out and having us come and, and share about our, our work. I feel like I have to just go out over the Emma Lazarus poem that's on the uh, tablet that the Statue of Liberty is uh, holding and I only know have memorized the first part, but I think it's exactly what we have to keep in mind as Americans. This is the America that those of us here and those of us listening and enjoying this kind of content, I think really want to see, which is give me your tire, your poor, your destitute learning to breathe free. And that's what this country represents to so many. And we hope that we will continue to be part of a narrative and a voice for those who are trying to give the people that come here and the people who live here that opportunity. Thank you. This has been a real pleasure and an honor. So I really appreciate your time. Likewise. Y'all have a, have a great week and I hope we do it again. I do as well. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>